1: So, start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on slash achieve today.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Roll
1: As broadcast. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022, the 378th day of dystopia. And my friends, the complete and total collapse of the central narrative continues in earnest. Such good news we have today. I didn't intend to start the show this way, but the news just came out that CNN's Jeff Zucker has resigned. And of course, we know CNN's ratings have collapsed. They have lost 90% of their audience. They have had two of their major star anchors whose producers are facing legitimate charges of pedophilia. And the rest of their anchors seem to be having mental breakdowns on set every day. I mean, remember their New Year's Eve special? A drunk Don Lemon asking some woman if her resolution was to be chained to a bed? Things are an absolute mess over there. So Jeff Zucker was dating an employee of CNN an executive vice president named Allison Gallist. And it turns out that she used to be Chris Cuomo's comms director. Isn't that very, very interesting considering what's going on with Chris Cuomo, who himself eventually had to leave the network because they said he had touched a woman's butt or something. But he had also spent all of 2020 shilling for his brother, who was at the time the governor of New York, who also had to leave his job for touching women's butts or something. And they are always happy to use some minor sexual infraction. And Andrew Cuomo's were worse than minor. And I accept that. I'm not trying to deny that or minimize it. But the scale of what he did does not compare in any way to what he did to residents of nursing homes when he was putting sick patients in with them and allowing them to die and then covering it up. And we know he covered it up because new numbers come out all the time, same as they do in Michigan. And they did the same process in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and California, at least. So it's often the case that they will have something they're actually trying to hide and actually trying to avoid. So they will resign with an excuse that is juicy enough to get people talking and distract from anything else they've done. And eventually it works its way through the news cycle and out and everyone forgets about it. Here is Jeff Zucker's little resignation announcement. As part of the investigation into Chris Cuomo's tenure at CNN, I was asked about a consensual relationship with my closest colleague, someone I have worked with for more than 20 years. I acknowledge the relationship evolved in recent years. I was required to disclose it when it began, but I didn't. I was wrong. As a result, I am resigning today. I came to CNN on January 28th, 2013. Together, we had nine great years. I certainly wish my tenure here had ended differently. But it was an amazing run, and I loved every minute. I am grateful to the thousands of incredibly talented CNN and Turner Sports employees who helped make this such a joy for me and such a success for all of us. I wish each of you nothing but the best in the years ahead. With gratitude and much love, Jeff. Okay, so Zucker's not leaving because CNN is in the tank and Jeff Zucker made it his mission Over the last five years, but probably much longer to work in direct opposition to the good of the American people. He was one of the leaders in fake news. They went out and blasted to the public that every conspiracy theory the Democrat Communist Party invented was actually true from the Russia hoax to the Ukraine impeachment to Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels, to the very fine people on both sides, to the Steele dossier, to the safest and most secure election of all time, to the January 6th insurrection, to critical race theory is good and parents of school kids are terrorists. They did it all. They tried to destroy the American populist movement, which is in fact working for the good of the American people. They tried to destroy Donald Trump on behalf of the global communists. And this is where they have gotten themselves. But none of that is the reason why Jeff Zucker's going. He's going because he didn't alert the company to the fact that he was having a relationship with Alison Gullist. And if you believe that that is sincere and that that was in some way necessary, well, I would think that you are not very in tune with how things actually work. Now, I have no doubt that they had a relationship, and I have no doubt that Jeff Zucker would have been required to report that relationship. That all may be true. But the idea that he would leave his job over that is crazy to me. I mean, why not just say, hey, I didn't say anything at the beginning because I wasn't really sure that we would have a relationship. Maybe something just happened and we had this thing and then we didn't know if it was going to be a thing. And like, tell us what actually happened, Jeff. The public isn't going to hate you because you're in love with someone you work with and decided not to tell the company. It seems pretty obvious that everyone at the company knows. And and knew and there were articles about Jeff Zucker and Alison Gallist for years now. So this certainly wasn't a secret. It wasn't really a secret in public, and it certainly wasn't a secret in private. So if it wasn't a secret in private, then you would have to assume that other people at the company knew. And if other people at the company knew and didn't have a problem with it, is it really an issue for him now in some legal sense? Probably not. There's definitely more going on, and we'll probably find out a little bit of that. But ultimately, unless it leads to another major problem at CNN, this is probably a nothing story that is good for some distraction. But it's still nice that CNN is crumbling ever faster. So this is what I was going to start with. Yesterday, when I went to post my podcast... And I post through Anchor, as you would know if you listen to the little ad at the end of each episode. And Anchor is owned by Spotify. So I go on to post the episode yesterday, and I get hit with Spotify's new content rules. Okay? And I have examined the content rules of social media sites before, because it's important to actually know what these things say that everyone agrees to. For instance, when I was banned from Instagram and then a Facebook employee let me back on within a few weeks, they released new terms of service. And those terms of service included the fact that if you were ever off the platform before they could immediately delete your account account and nothing you would have no recourse. And If you stayed on their platform, if you continued to use Instagram after December 20th, 2020, when those new terms went into effect, you would waive your right to join a class action lawsuit against Instagram and Facebook. And I was like, well, no way I'm waiving that right. Also, Instagram is a cesspool and it's a literal demoralization machine that targets you directly as the machine feels you need targeted. They choose what you see and what you don't see. They choose who sees your stuff and doesn't. They will subject you to the sorts of people who will spend their days trying to troll you and haze you and shame you and bully you and censor you. That is what they do. They don't want people with our perspective to feel good on the site. They want us to get mad and they want us to get nervous and they want us to believe that the entire world actually believes the wrong thing. But that's not true. We represent a vast majority and you have to understand that. Understand that the distortion of perception is real and You are doing it to yourself when you are on legacy social media platforms. That is what they exist for. But anyway, I have kind of taken to reading terms of service when I can tell that what they're saying is, hey, we're going to censor you more. Okay, so I look through their new terms and they have a section called dangerous content. Spotify is home to communities where people can create, express themselves, listen, share, learn, and be inspired. Don't promote violence, incite hatred, harass, or engage in any other behavior that may place people at risk of serious physical harm or death. And I'm like, okay, but that's not really what's happening. This doesn't apply to me at all, right? I'm not going to produce, for instance, content that advocates or glorifies serious physical harm towards an individual or group. That's just not in my being at all, right? Content that targets an individual or identifiable group for harassment or related abuse. Okay, got that covered. Moving on. Content that incites violence or hatred toward a person or group of people based on race, religion, gender identity, or expression, sex, ethnicity, nationality, sexual orientation, veteran status, age, disability, or other characteristics associated with systemic discrimination or marginalization. Blah, 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 blah. And I don't do that, so whatever. Here's where we get to the good stuff. Content that promotes dangerous false or dangerous deceptive that may cause offline harm or poses a direct threat to public health. Includes, but may not be limited to, asserting that AIDS, COVID-19, cancer, or other serious life-threatening diseases are a hoax or not real. Well, which one is it? A hoax or not real? We can't say either thing. What if we talk about hoaxes that happened in the context of a real disease? Are we allowed to do that? Because we've certainly had those. Masks don't work. Saying that masks do work is perpetuating a hoax. Encouraging the consumption of bleach products to cure various illnesses and diseases. Okay. Okay promoting or suggesting that vaccines approved by local health authorities are designed to cause death. Now, what is a local health authority? Does the FDA count as a local health authority? If the FDA approves on an emergency use basis, a vaccine in quotes, that inadvertently causes death, are we allowed to discuss that or do we have to pretend that the vaccine, in quotes, isn't the cause of death even when it is the cause of death? Do we have to lie? So the FDA just yesterday approved uh, a version of Moderna's quote-unquote vaccine called SpikeVax and they did the exact same thing that they did with Pfizer and Comirnaty. They approved Comernity, not Pfizer, and they approved a licensure agreement. Okay, same thing with Spikevax. Spikevax is Moderna under a different name. And now that they've approved the licensures, the media says that they have had full approval, but they haven't even written the package inserts for these to say what is in them. You can go and get the package insert fully blank. So these haven't been approved by local authorities, if local is the national authority, and if the local authority is your governor or state public health director, well, them approving of the quote-unquote vaccine doesn't say anything about the efficacy of the vaccine or the safety of the vaccine. We should still be able to talk about that, shouldn't we? So if the vaccine causes death inadvertently, is it okay to talk about that? It's only a problem if we say the vaccine was designed to cause death. Is it okay to say that COVID was created in a lab in Wuhan, as we know it to be, and it was created as part of a dual-use research of concern project, which means it was created to try to fix something in the world for sure? But it was also part of a bioweapons program. That is also a fact. If something is killing a large amount of people inadvertently and doing permanent uh, irreversible damage to people's immune systems on a large scale inadvertently, are we allowed to talk about that? And if local health authorities know that and continue to push the vaccine in quotes, what are we supposed to make of that? I wonder where Spotify stands on this. These are just questions that I'm asking. I would like to fully understand the terms of service before they censor me and ban my show. Encouraging people to purposefully get infected with COVID-19 in order to build immunity to it. For example, promoting or hosting coronavirus parties. Well, I certainly have never talked about that. Maybe some podcast hosts out there think that that's a good idea. Fine. I mean, Omicron is basically a normal seasonal cold or a mild seasonal flu. The disease itself kills almost no one. That's what the facts are, okay? And it's also simply a fact that the original coronavirus had an infection fatality rate around 0.1%. That is one person out of every thousand people. And in that one person out of every thousand people, repeated over and over again, obviously, almost that entire person out of a thousand people on average has four comorbidities, but likely more, is in advanced age, over 70, and much of that over 75, over 80, etc., and or obese, And that accounts for 94-ish percent of the recorded COVID deaths in America. Are we allowed to say facts? Are facts still okay? They also have a section on child exploitation and child abuse. I mean, great for them for adding the section. I don't imagine there's a whole lot of Spotify content out there promoting that. But then again, Liberal college professors are allowed to have shows, so who knows? They also have a section on deceptive content, and they have things like impersonating someone else, uh, promoting uh, manipulated and synthetic media as authentic, which means like if you edit videos or pictures and pretend that they're real, that poses a risk of harm to people. You can't do that. Here's the other interesting one. Content that attempts to manipulate or interfere with election-related processes includes but may not be limited to misrepresentation of procedures in a civic process that could discourage or prevent participation. Now, this always catches my attention because, as I've talked about before on this show, Judicial Watch FOIAed some records from the California Secretary of State's office last year and in those records, they had emails requesting the censorship of certain content on social media uh, from accounts in California. And these went through a publicity firm directly to the social media companies and the National Association of Secretaries of State, because this was a countrywide effort by the members of the NASS to facilitate censorship of election related information that did not fit their narrative. With a portal from the big tech companies. And I was in a video recorded by my friend Samita Armstrong with my buddy Siaka. And I was talking about how my voter registration in California had been changed to permanent vote by mail. I didn't do that. The state did that. And I know why the state did that, of course, because they wanted to be able to say that, well, 98% of our voters have actually requested permanent vote by mail. And now they're making it even worse. You can vote by really anything. You're allowed to print your own ballot at home. California's voter regulations are a joke. Okay, but what I said was 100% true. I was describing something that happened to me that I could see with my own eyes and yes, I was able to take myself off that list, but that doesn't mean that what I said about them putting me on the list was incorrect. A hundred percent true. And they took it down at the request of the California secretary of state's office. For this reason, they said it was deceptive about elections and it might discourage people from voting. That is not what that is. That is a citizen reporting facts about a corrupt government trying to influence elections in very tangible ways. Here's the other part. Misleading content promoted to intimidate or suppress voters from participating in an election. And I certainly don't do that. I mean, I want everybody to be able to go vote in person on election day with no harassment And nothing that prevents them from getting to the polls, choosing the candidates they want to choose, and submitting their ballot that they know will be safely counted, honestly. And if that is dangerous content, well, I guess that I am going to get censored. And at the end of their new rules section, they say, what happens to rule breakers? We take these decisions seriously and keep context in mind when making them. Breaking the rules may result in the violative content being removed from Spotify. Repeated or egregious violations may result in accounts being suspended and or terminated. So right now you have the beginning of censorship on Spotify the same way it exists on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere. Now I want to place this in its proper context. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the story about Neil Young and then a bunch of other washed-up artists saying they wanted to remove their music from Spotify if they kept Joe Rogan on Spotify. So Rogan responded in a video the other day, most of which was fine. He was saying, you know, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, they're experts, they're incredibly well-credentialed, they've been cited thousands of times. These are people we need to hear from and should listen to. And that's awesome. He also said, I'm totally fine with another point of view coming in and being heard, which is great, except that other point of view is not going to come in and be heard. Sanjay Gupta would not go on Joe Rogan's podcast now because now that Joe Rogan and his audience have been exposed to some real information for the first time in the last two years, aside from his podcast with Brett Weinstein, still, by the way, zero podcasts on election fraud, but cool. Very good source of information. Fine. But then he said, I'm sorry if I made anybody mad. And that's silly. You're a grown man. Don't apologize to these people. But here's the only bad part of his 10-minute speech. And this part is, honestly, pretty bad.
3: Because of this controversy, and I'm sure there's a lot of other things going on behind the scenes with these controversies, but uh, Neil Young has removed his music from the, the platform of Spotify, and uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, apparently some other people want to as well. Um, I'm very sorry that they feel that way. I, 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 I most certainly don't want that. Uh, I'm a Neil Young fan. I've always been a Neil Young fan. I'll tell you a story at the end of this about that. One of the things that Spotify wants to do that I agree with is that at the beginning of these controversial podcasts, like specifically ones about COVID, is to put a disclaimer and say that you should speak with your physician and that these people and the opinions that they express are contrary to the opinions of uh, the consensus of experts, which I think is very important. Sure, have that on there, I'm very happy with that. Um, Also, I think uh, if there's anything that I've done that I could do better is uh, have more experts with differing opinions right after I have the controversial ones. Uh, I would most certainly be open to doing that. And uh, I would like to talk to some people that have uh, differing opinions on those podcasts in the future.
1: So Rogan is okay with a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast. And that's fine. That's one thing. That's not what Spotify's new rules just said. And I went through them with you. But the problem in what he said was that the other part of that disclaimer is that the opinions being expressed do not comport with the consensus of experts that, first of all, assumes there is a consensus of experts. And it second of all, assumes that their experts who have formed this consensus are the people who are right. And so this other opinion, well, this exists outside the mainstream. And listen, I am totally open to the argument that that sort of thing will backfire in their faces massively, right? People want to hear the other opinion at this point. People don't even need to hear the other opinion at this point to know that the central narrative is completely wrong because they see nothing but insane people calling everybody racist and bigots to try to explain why their COVID narrative is right. It doesn't make any sense. And normal people can pick up on this. You don't have to follow it every day. You have to be Somewhat in tuned with the idea that there are people who lie and you should be able to spot them as an adult with a full size functional adult brain. But there's no consensus forming around the CDC position or the Fauci position or the public health community's position or the CCP university's position spoken through our own American college professors. The consensus is not forming around that position at all. In fact, every time they have told us that their position is a consensus position, it later falls down in the face of actual facts and an actual consensus forming against it. Robert Malone doesn't just represent himself. He represents a consortium of 17,000 doctors and experts. There is more than enough. If we're talking about the democracy of belief, right, whichever side has more believers that ends up being right. That's not a concept I believe in at all, but that is the concept they are trying to use and they are failing even to establish that they have the democracy of belief on their side. And so let's think back about how this started, because I did an episode on this a few weeks ago, probably one of the first episodes after I returned in the new year and started the end game moving away from high noon. One of those first episodes, I talked about the censorship uh, narrative that they're trying to drum up, right? Joe Biden went out and mumbled about how podcasts are very dangerous and that some of the, this content needs to be removed from these shows and blah, blah, blah. It didn't make sense because Joe Biden has no idea what he's talking about, but he was going after that. The next day, a study from the, Communist Brookings Institution came out saying that they had studied podcasts from late in 2020 like War Room with Steve Bannon and Alex Jones and some other stuff. And they counted up the mentions of election disinformation and they decided that this was a factor in what made the very violent insurrection so very violent. And then the media picks that up and runs with it. They talk about this very important study from the Communist Brookings Institution and how this shows that we do have this real problem with disinformation in the podcast world. Then Jen Psaki gets questions about it and rolls the narrative over for one more day. And then we get a very, very organic pressure campaign from Neil Young's wife, Daryl Hannah, grabbing his phone and tweeting that Spotify needs to take down his whole catalog if they're going to keep Joe Rogan's up. And then we have Joni Mitchell. And I guess somebody said Barry Manilow didn't actually join it. It's hard. It's hard to tell which of the completely washed up artists are joining this thing and which are only rumored to be joining it. So some people joined that. And then Rogan gets a call from Spotify. Clearly, he alluded to talking to Spotify. He comes out and he makes his video trying to soften the whole thing, tamp down the effort to get Joe Rogan canceled. And by the way, No one is more uncancelable than Joe Rogan, unless he has like the darkest shit ever in his past that he's been hiding all these many years. And I don't think he does have that. I am not trying to knock Joe Rogan's character here. I don't think he has that. But unless he has some shit like that, Joe Rogan is thoroughly uncancelable. Spotify could end their contract with him. He could get out of that. And unless there's some crazy non-compete clause that I'm unaware of that everybody obviously would be unaware of because we haven't seen his contract, he could immediately move to Rumble or another platform the next day, and all of his audience would follow him there. All of his audience followed him from YouTube to Spotify. We've already seen it work. Joe Rogan is the most uncancelable person out there. He commands an audience of 10 plus million people every episode. He needs to be the biggest free speech advocate of all time because he's the one who gets to continue to speak no matter what, unless he accepts the censorship. So, Rogan makes his announcement. Spotify puts out their new rules, which Joe Rogan has essentially given his stamp of approval to. I'm not sure if he read them. Maybe he talked to his contact at Spotify and they told him, hey, you know, we're just going to put a disclaimer on the beginning of shows and that's going to be it. Did Joe Rogan read the new rules? I have no idea. But they wouldn't apply to him anyway because he's got a hundred million dollar contract. So what this really does is facilitate the censorship of lesser known voices who are the ones actually making an impact. And I know that the McCullough episode and the Malone episode had a giant impact, but he could have found both of those two people a year and a half earlier, and we could have skipped this whole charade, but he didn't. So he's apologized. Spotify makes their new rules. And then yesterday in the White House press room, this happens.
3: Um, Last week, the Surgeon General also was asked uh, on MSNBC about Joe Rogan's vaccine comments uh, on Spotify. And he said that tech companies have an important role to play in stopping misinformation because uh, they are the predominant places where misinformation spreads. Um, Spotify is putting out uh, advisory warnings on episodes that have to do with COVID-19. Does the White House and the administration think this is a satisfactory step, or do you uh, do you think that companies like Spotify should go further than just you know putting a label on there to say, hey, go do your own, you know, t- check this out, you know, there's more research you can look at, you know, scientific research regarding COVID?
2: Sure. Well, last July, you probably know, but the Surgeon General also took the unprecedented step to issue an advisor on the risk of misinformation in public health, which is a very significant step. And amid that, he talked about the role social media platforms have. So our hope is that all major tech platforms and all major news sources, for that matter, be responsible and be vigilant to ensure the American people have access to accurate information on something as significant as COVID-19. That certainly includes Spotify. So this disclaimer, it's a positive step, but we want every platform to continue doing more to call out misinfor- and mis- and disinformation while also uplifting accurate information. I mean, look at the facts, right? you are 16 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated and 68 times more likely to die than someone who is boosted if you're unvaccinated. That's pretty significant. And we think that is something that unquestionably should be the basis of how people are communicating about it. But ultimately, uh, you know, our view is it's 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 a good step. It's a positive step, but there's more that can be done.
1: So that is the communist press secretary of the illegitimate administration. Encouraging censorship in conjunction with a major corporation. All right. We talk about World War II Germany. We talk about book burning and censorship. We talk about fascism, the relationship between the state and corporate interests as they meld together in opposition to the people to extract the people's money. That's what fascism is. Okay. We have the press secretary for an illegitimate state leader requesting that corporations further censor the people because only their narrative can get out. And now, that study that she continues to cite about the effectiveness of vaccines and how they reduce death is. utterly absurd. It's a CDC study she's talking about. The CDC can basically make up whatever they want and it doesn't get peer reviewed. Everybody tears them apart, but it doesn't matter because it carries the imprimatur of the CDC and all the child brains think, oh, the CDC has to tell us the truth. They can get all the truth. They can just pull it right out of the world. They just stick their hands up in the sky and soon the electricity of the truth just feeds into the body of the CDC, and then the CDC turns around like a break dancer and just shoots it right out in one glowing ball that hits you from across the dance floor. And all of a sudden, truth has been made. The CDC is correct. And Jen Psaki then gets to demand censorship because they have the truth, the lie is dangerous, and we need to protect everybody. It has been determined that the best way to protect everybody is to reduce your ability to speak freely and share information. Sorry, it's for your own good. Now, historically, we have seen these things, this set of characteristics as exactly what it is because we know the historical examples. We know that there was... Censorship and book burning and fascism in World War II Axis power countries. We know that as a fact of history. But now we're supposed to deny it when we see it before our very eyes because there's cute little Instagram influencer Jen Psaki telling us. And there's old decent Joe as the illegitimate dictatorial power. And all the celebrities are on their side right? And we know in World War II, they didn't make propaganda movies with famous actors. I mean, they they didn't. They, oh, they did do that. Okay. So they did that too. Well, they've got all the science on their side. Oh, they were running medical experiments on people in World War II too. Oh man. Well, I mean, at least we have free Business, like, look at all the stuff we buy. Oh, it's all from China. Oh, it's made in concentration camps. Oh, they call them factories, but the people can't leave. Okay. Well, people jump out of the factories. They put suicide nets on the factories so that when people jumped out, they wouldn't actually die and then they would just get taken right back into the building so that they could work more. Oh, yeah. No, those aren't. Oh, yeah, they are concentration camps. Oh, and then they have actual concentration camps in Xinjiang province where they have over 2 million Muslim Uyghurs there. They're trying to re-educate them out of their religion and belief system. The women are raped and sterilized. Their heads are shaven so that their hair can be sold to Western women as extensions. And the men are beaten and tortured. Wow. Yeah, it's nothing like World War II. Why would I ever come to that conclusion? And hey. While we're at it, ask yourself, what is the most vaccinated country on earth? What's the country you continue to hear about getting more shots? They're about to get their fourth one. Guess where it is. I'm not going to tell you. You got to guess. And speaking of slave labor, boom segue, the United States surpassed 30 trillion dollars in our national debt yesterday. How do you pay off $30 trillion? Does anybody have a guess? Oh, here's the answer. You don't. So why would a group of people, let's say, go ahead and extend $30 trillion worth of debt to a country knowing that they would never have that debt paid off in return? What could you, let's say, own if the entire country was in debt Slavery, let's say. But I mean, naturally, our government is choosing the level of taxation. So they're just going to be wise about what they choose so that the debt problem doesn't become the devastating economic crisis. It absolutely will become. What is it called when a government who... Writes the rules of the tax code to make sure that they're not really taxing themselves, that they can enrich themselves and then pay some level of taxes. They write the code so that corporations can skirt their way around taxes so that philanthropical organizations and NGOs can avoid taxes. What do they call it when the government has hundreds of millions of people working to pay off a debt that they didn't create? And what is it when there's no way out of that condition unless you choose to comply completely and to the best of your talents and serve the state in whatever way it wants? Like you can get rich, but can you ever get out of your condition in full? Can you ever be someone like LeBron James or Beyonce and speak out against the state? Not that you want to because they pay you too much for that. But the answer ultimately is still no. They'll just wipe away everything they gave you and you will be tossed back in the pile with the rest of the people who have to actually work all the time to pay off those debts. And so what then would you call it if you could never get out of your position and your children could never get out of their position and your children's children would be destined to a life in that position as well? Well, All of that, aside from our perception of freedom, sounds an awful lot like slavery. But I know, I know, the whips aren't out yet. And hey, we're not talking about only black people here. So what is it, racist to consider that other people with other types of skin might also be eligible to be slaves as they were throughout history? No, let's not even, let's not even Think about that. But surely the elites would never try to enslave the world as they have done throughout virtually all of human history. They would never do that. I mean, yes, they have a veritable slave trade being run on the southern border right now, courtesy of the fake president Joe Biden in conjunction with the Mexican cartels, who are also, by the way, bringing in Chinese fentanyl to America. And Fentanyl kind of kills a lot of people, but they would never do anything like that. I mean, surely they're not going to come for us. And our uniparty politicians would never want to create all of this debt on purpose for that reason, even though there's $30 trillion of it right now and none of them seem to care while they amass further power. But hey, apparently we're going to have $200 billion more infrastructure. So hooray. And hey, what do I know? I'm a conspiracy theorist. This is from the Washington Examiner today. Biden in worst president ever territory. This is Paul Bedard, who's usually better than most of the Washington Examiner establishment communists. Yup, President Biden has finally gone there. Battered by horrible approval ratings and just today whacked in a Gallup survey showing that voter satisfaction has hit a gloomy new low. Biden in just a year is being kicked to the side of the road by voters or as Rasmussen reports said in its latest analysis, most voters think President Joe Biden is one of the worst to ever hold office and rank him below his two immediate predecessors in the White House. In three questions, Rasmussen asked voters about Biden, former President Donald Trump and former President Barack Obama. They were asked if each will be remembered as the best, worst or just average for Obama. Thirty four percent said one of the best ever. Thirty three percent said one of the worst ever and 30 percent said about average for Donald Trump. Forty one percent said he was among the best ever. Forty three among the worst ever and 12 about average. So very divided on that for Biden, only 15 percent said that Biden would be one of the best presidents ever. And those people are utterly insane. Fifty four percent of the country said that Joe Biden would be remembered as one of the worst presidents ever. Twenty five percent said he would be remembered as average. Notably, slightly more Democrats judged Biden the worst. Twenty eight percent over the best. So more Democrats think Joe Biden will be remembered as one of the worst presidents ever than the number of Democrats who think he'll be one of the best in a Gallup poll out today. Adults cited only one area out of nearly three dozen in which events are trending for the better acceptance of gays and lesbians. So congratulations, Democrats. What a legacy. Collectively, satisfaction at the start of 2022 in a variety of areas is about as bad as it's been in two decades of Gallup measurement, said the gloomy analysis. All of that is pretty amazing for the most popular president in history, the most votes of all time. Six million more real legal American votes than Donald Trump, who simultaneously also amassed a number that would have been the most votes of all time, if not for the incredible popularity of Joe Biden, who got 81 million real legal American votes. I wonder if Spotify is going to begin censoring sarcasm. Oh, and by the way, one thing about that Spotify thing, if for some reason I get my show taken down, okay, you can reach me at Substack. I will certainly write something about it if the show gets taken down, and I'll have details on where you can find me. Worst case scenario, I would record Change it into a video format and put it on Rumble or BitChute or someplace. I think Podbean is kind of out of the, you know, central corporate bubble. So I think that it would still be safe there. There are options. T dot me slash I'm your moderator. You can always keep up there. If something were to happen and the show got taken down, I will just simply put it up somewhere else and I hope you all will be there to follow me. Now changing subjects without a segue. This is from the Western Journal today. What we've been waiting for. Judge may release bombshell report on Dominion voting machines in Georgia. This is Jack Davis today. A federal judge is being urged to release a report that, despite the secrecy surrounding it, appears to indicate there are potential flaws in the Dominion voting systems equipment used in Georgia. The public deserves to know the context of J. Alex Halderman's claims and his testimony regarding the 2020 election. Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, said last week in calling for the document to be released, the Washington Examiner reported. Now, this is a major about face for Brad Raffensperger. Maybe he thinks he can get off scot-free if we just find out so late in the process that it really was the machines that are a problem. Brad Ravensburger might be trying to avoid his own guilt in the election in Georgia in 2020 and then the runoff in 2021. We're going to have to see how that plays out. Georgia voters face an extreme risk that ballot marking device based attacks could manipulate their individual votes and alter election outcomes. Halderman, a University of Michigan computer science professor, said about the report last year, according to the Daily Beast. In its reporting, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has indicated that the report completed last year describes how someone could hack the system to change votes without saying whether or not this was ever accomplished. Wink, wink. And you can just hear the narrative. You can hear the liberal whine. If you were to ever bring something like this up to them, well, okay, well, fine. I mean, everybody knows that it's possible, but there's like no evidence that it actually happened. These are just baseless claims. Okay, Gummy. Halderman exploring the world of possibilities, said malicious software could be installed on voting touchscreens to change votes from one candidate to another. Votes could also be altered through QR codes used by scanners, he said, without indicating that this had been done. The report is part of a lawsuit that seeks to change Georgia's system for voting. More importantly, it is a piece of a wider discussion about potential election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. To date, no one has produced any evidence or documentation that proves the machines were tampered with in 2020. Dominion, which was the target of multiple post-election allegations, has fought back, suing several of those who claimed its machines were part of an election fraud conspiracy. And I can't wait to see how those lawsuits turn out. Man, the discovery is going to be incredible. But wouldn't the discovery be especially incredible if the party being sued actually already had all the data and the proof that the Dominion machines were accessed and votes were switched? Well, yes, it would be. Does someone have that sort of information? Well, yes, Mike Lindell has it. And now other people have it too. It will be a glorious day when Dominion rescinds those very, very frivolous lawsuits. And calling them frivolous is actually nice. Those lawsuits were intended only to silence people about the truth. U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg is considering releasing a redacted version of the report and said she is irked that the report has turned into a political football, according to the Journal-Constitution. Well, then perhaps it should have been released much earlier. I'm unhappy with the political treatment of the report, Totenberg said last week. The entire purpose of having hearings was to maximize transparency, but at the same time trying to be mindful of the risks involved in disclosure. Well, what is the risk? Amy, I mean, judge, either the systems are safe and secure, and we could continue on with the notion that the 2020 elections were the safest and most secure of all time, or the report says the systems are not at all secure. And then we would be able to fix our elections so that in the future, we actually could have one person, one vote as intended. What is the danger here? Oh, the danger is to the central narrative and to the idea that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. Well, whose fault is that danger? It's certainly not the fault of the report. The report is just stating simple, provable facts based on the machines and how they're actually used. Where's the danger? Release the report. I don't want to have somebody saying We would have released the full report but for Judge Totenberg, she continued. Well, again, release it. On Monday, Totenberg asked Georgia election officials and plaintiffs suing over election security to outline by Wednesday, that's today, how they believe the report should be released according to the Journal Constitution. I want people to understand the general concerns without giving anyone a roadmap to hacking or intruding on the system or manipulating it, Totenberg said. Well, She's read the report. So what would a statement like that mean? The report is a roadmap of how to hack and access Dominion systems. So then you're saying it could be done. And not only are you saying that it could be done, but how it could be done. One option is to send the full report to the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency while a more limited version goes public. Wouldn't that be great? Hopefully the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency has you know tightened things up since the environmental science major Chris Krebs was running CISA during the last election he is the man responsible for saying that it was the safest and most secure election in the country's history but i'm sure cisa will be very honest this time Raffensperger in the past has said the system of recounts and audits would disclose any attempt to rig an election while knowing that's not true i added that part Republican Governor Brian Kemp has called on Raffensperger to review the experts report and ensure voting machines are safe. Obviously, Brian Kemp does not care either. Brian Kemp, as much as anyone in the country, is responsible for the cover up of the 2020 election. Now that Governor Kemp publicly called him out for failing to comply with his duties to address those vulnerabilities and ignoring the report since last summer, he's desperate to point the finger at others, said David Cross, an attorney for the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. But he made the decision many months ago not to address the report, and he's accountable to voters for that deliberate dereliction. It's really concerning that the Georgia Secretary of State and Dominion are kind of putting their head in the sand, said Susan Greenhall, an election security consultant for plaintiffs suing over Georgia's voting system, according to the journal Constitution. Common sense would say you want to be able to evaluate the claims and then take appropriate action, and they're not doing any of that. Although the details of Halderman's report remain confidential, the outlines have been made public. It is important to recognize the possibility that nefarious actors already have discovered the same problems I detail in my report and are preparing to exploit them in future elections, Halderman wrote in a September statement. He said the possibility exists for manipulation either at a polling place or by hacking into the election system's computers, but indicated he has seen no evidence that this was done. And of course, that's not what he was tasked with finding out. Raffensberger has criticized the report the smoke and mirrors techniques of professor halderman and the plaintiffs in this case does not serve georgia voters well Raffensberger said and so now i guess we have brad's tactic down right yes he says go ahead and release the report with redactions with redactions release the report but with redactions but also The report can't be trusted because the man who authored the report uses smoke and mirrors techniques. Thank goodness Brad Raffensperger, who is a member of the National Association of Secretaries of State, as I mentioned before, is on the case and also letting us know that no matter what the report says after we redact it, you still can't trust its author anyway. Brad Raffensperger is also an actual Democrat serving as a Republican, just as his little buddy Geordie Fuchs is. There is a PR firm in Georgia who targets Democrats to run as Republicans so that when someone goes in the voter booth, they see D and R and they say, oh, those Democrats are absolutely nuts. And then they select R. And then a Democrat gets into office because what they set up in the first place was a Democrat running against an even more dishonest, apparently Democrat. So the takeaway here is you should feel very, very safe about your elections. So I want to follow up on a story I was discussing yesterday. This is from late last night in just the news, John Solomon reporting. And by the way, just a note on John Solomon. I have said that. He has a new show on Real America's Voice TV, America's Voice dot news, called Just the News. And his co-host is my friend Amanda Head. And I've watched the last couple days, and she is doing a really great job and a job that not a lot of journalists on television are doing. Because Amanda is Mainstream in her sensibilities in some way, but she also fully understands the populist movement and the MAGA movement. I don't know where all her political affiliations lie, and I don't mean in any way to speak for her, but the fact that she understands what the real movement in the country represents and thinks allows her to ask questions in a way that gets answers we're not hearing anywhere else from people that we do hear in other places, okay? Like the last two days, they've had, for instance, Ron Johnson and Jim Jordan, who are interviewed on Fox and other networks pretty consistently. But it's important that an interviewer actually understands the background context of all the subject matter they're discussing. And to have your finger on the pulse of what this real movement represents is a major asset for Amanda. And I think we're going to see really good stuff coming out of that show. So this is from late last night. Just the news. John Solomon classified State Department email declared Hunter Biden undercut U.S. efforts in Ukraine. In an email kept from public view for more than five years, a top U.S. State Department official in Kiev wrote to Washington superiors at the end of the Obama Biden administration that Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine undercut U.S. efforts to fight corruption in the former Soviet Republic and undercut is a quote. The email obtained by Just the News was written on November 22nd, 2016, by former U.S. Embassy official George Kent, one of the Democrats' star witnesses in their first effort to impeach former President Donald Trump. It was classified confidential, the lowest level of secrecy, by then U.S. Ambassador to Kiev Marie Yovanovitch, another of the Democrats' impeachment witnesses, and was not produced as evidence to House lawmakers during impeachment. Contrary to federal law, the State Department failed to acknowledge the existence of the document to the court or to just the news in its multiple Freedom of Information Act lawsuits against the State Department, seeking records on Hunter and Joe Biden's dealings in Ukraine. So once again, like yesterday, we have evidence that the Democrat Communist Party trying to impeach President Donald Trump over a phone call withheld evidence from an impeachment hearing. And isn't it amazing that all their impeachment witnesses are tied together in all of this? It almost not quite. I know not quite, but it almost seems like there was some sort of conspiracy to impeach Donald Trump. How strange. I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. Most importantly, the email's stark message directly conflicts with the narrative, the mainstream media, State Department witnesses and Democratic congressmen gave the public two years ago when they insisted Hunter Biden's lucrative job with the allegedly corrupt Ukrainian gas company Burisma Holdings, while creating the appearance of a conflict of interest, had no impact on U.S. efforts to fight corruption in that country. The real issue to my mind was that someone in Washington needed to engage VP Biden quietly and say that his son Hunter's presence on the Burisma board undercut the anti-corruption message the VP and we were advancing in Ukraine, Kent wrote multiple high-ranking officials in the State Department in Washington. The recipients of the email included Jorgen K. Andrews then the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Why was he connected? Kent's email described an intense pressure campaign by advocates for Burisma, including a former U.S. ambassador, to rehabilitate the Ukrainian company's corrupt reputation and get Ukrainian prosecutors to drop their criminal investigations of the company. Kent even relayed to higher ups that he had confirmed with Ukrainian prosecutors that Burisma officials had paid a seven million dollar bribe to make one of the cases against the company disappear. The bribe was allegedly paid at a time when Hunter Biden was serving on the Burisma board, a job that landed his firm more than three million dollars from the Ukrainian energy company. Kent explained to the officials in Washington that Burisma's long reputation for alleged corruption and anecdotes like the bribe were one of the main reasons Hunter Biden's affiliation with the company proved harmful to U.S. efforts to fight Ukrainian corruption. Ukrainians heard one message from us, Kent wrote, and then saw another set of behavior. With the Biden family's association with a known corrupt figure whose company was known for not playing by the rules in the oil and gas sector. You can read Kent's email. There is a link in the Just the News article. The email chain also showed that state officials were acutely aware that Hunter Biden had an affiliation with an American business partner also accused and eventually convicted of corruption. I should note that there were two American members of the Burisma board, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, another state official on the email chain, wrote Kent and Andrews. Archer was recently indicted in a federal fraud case, and it seems like Devin Archer must have taken the fall. Maybe there was a promise of a Joe Biden pardon. I wonder if not. Maybe he wants to be more honest than he was in the past about the dealings of Joe and Hunter Biden in Ukraine. And maybe he already has. Ohio GOP Representative Jim Jordan, the ranking member on the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee, played a key role in defending President Trump in the 2019-2020 Ukraine impeachment scandal. He told Just the News Tuesday night that lawmakers and Trump's defense team were not given the Kent email as best he could tell. This is frightening, Jordan told the new Just the News television show on Real America's Voice Network. And the fact that we didn't have this information during the impeachment, I think, is maybe the biggest concern. I mean, the president of the United States is defending himself from a ridiculous impeachment process that the Democrats bring on him where he wasn't allowed to be in the depositions, wasn't allowed to have his counsel there. And now we find out wasn't allowed to have information that he's entitled to have to put on his defense. I mean, Frankly, we Republicans who were in the rooms in that bunker in the basement of the Capitol, we'd have liked to have this information that you just described and other information that wasn't available to us as well that you've written about. State Department officials did not immediately respond to requests for comment Tuesday about the memo. Alan Dershowitz, the famed Harvard law professor who was a member of Trump's impeachment defense team, said the withholding of Kent's email and other evidence just the news reported earlier this week was a very serious constitutional violation of what is known as the Brady rule, requiring all potentially exculpatory evidence be turned over to defendants. The United States Supreme Court in the Brady decision ruled that when a defendant is on trial. The prosecutors cannot withhold evidence that could be exculpatory or in any way helpful to the defendant, Dershowitz said. And obviously that has to imply to impeachment proceedings even more so, he added, because in impeachment proceedings, the American public has the right to know all the evidence. And if the people who impeached President Trump obviously I was one of the lawyers on the other side were aware of the exculpatory evidence or evidence that would in some way mitigate the charges. They had an obligation to turn it over to us so that we could use this information in defending our client. So what does it mean that the house impeachment managers like Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff, and then all of these witnesses had exculpatory information that they withheld and in doing so did something illegal. Is it okay to break the law in order to remove a duly elected president from office because you and your supporters don't like him and don't want to get in trouble for the other corrupt things you've done? If you answered, yeah, maybe you might be a communist. And I was thinking about this this morning because this is a pretty common mindset, Pretty common pattern of events that we see repeated by the Democrat Communist Party, their complicit uniparty, global communist, et cetera. When they do something illegal, they argue it's okay because it was the right thing to do, right? Like they protected this race or this gender or some class here or some class there or jail is like not nice and criminals shouldn't be put there. They'll make some moral argument. As to why the illegal thing that they did or the corrupt thing that they did was actually helpful. So they shouldn't be blamed. And then when they do something morally reprehensible that they can in some way reconstrue as not against the law, then they say, well, hey, you know, you might not like it, but there's no law against it. Well, hey, you write the rules, guys. You write the laws so that you are able to break them in the ways that you want. And we can see that pattern on full display. And yes, they understand that it's hypocritical, but they don't care because they believe that they are always right and cannot be otherwise because of how bad the other side is, right? That is why they paint their opponents as evil all the time. They're good, you're evil. So even if they do something immoral or illegal, Well, at least we're not those guys. We did this stuff because we had to. Otherwise, those guys would take over. And they're the evil ones. Once again, the old switcheroo. And it's the same pattern that they use when they're talking about the 2020 elections. They say, well, the courts, the courts said what we did wasn't illegal. And the truth is the courts haven't said that. Some courts refuse to see cases in the run-up to the certification, the very legitimate certification of electors. But the courts, for the most part, have not determined at all that what was done was illegal. The Wisconsin courts and the Pennsylvania courts have already said clearly in decisions that the election processes in 2020 were unconstitutional, but they don't care. They give a complicated and convoluted explanation about why what they did really wasn't wrong and also has all of these benefits and they expect you to simply accept that and then they have the media and tech and the universities and everyone else there to reinforce their message everyone else is evil therefore it doesn't matter what these people have done i would call it moral relativism but the truth is there's no underlying moral code there at all morality doesn't even enter the picture it is only power and the pursuit of power through any means necessary. That's why we have an illegitimate president in the White House right now. Officials who served in the State Department back in 2019-2020 said they do not believe the email was produced to the impeachment investigation and was definitely not produced after the successful FOIA lawsuits filed by Just the News and Southeastern Legal Foundation seeking all records related to Hunter Biden and Burisma. They said the email the once classified at the confidential level was circulated in non classified settings toward the end of the Trump administration and was produced to Senate investigators in late 2020 to be read in a secure reading room. Kimberly Herman, the general counsel for the Southeastern Legal Foundation, said that Kent's email was clearly responsive to the FOIA requests and should either have been produced to just the news during litigation or identified on a privilege log as a document being withheld by the government. She vowed to seek penalties against the government. The State Department should have produced these documents years ago when SLF and JTN first requested them. Herman said. Instead, they denied their existence, hid them and arguably did so in bad faith. These bad actors must now be held accountable for what the documents show for hiding them and for misleading the American public. Jordan said his congressional investigators will be reviewing testimony from the impeachment trial and a separate Senate investigation into the Biden family led by Senator Ron Johnson in 2020 to see if any of the new evidence conflicts with sworn testimony given to Congress. Well, it's something we're going to have to look at, Jordan said. We've got to go back and review their transcripts. Just the News reviewed testimony given by more than two dozen people during the impeachment proceedings and Johnson's Senate probe and found no mention of the Kent email, but found numerous statements that Hunter Biden's role with Burisma had no effect on U.S.-Ukraine policy, which we can see now and knew then was a lie. Kent, in both proceedings, testified that Hunter Biden's affiliation with Burisma created the appearance of a conflict of interest for Joe Biden and that one time he tried to raise the issue with Biden's vice presidential office and was rebuffed. He also sharply criticized this reporter's articles for The Hill that raised questions about the Biden's business dealings in Ukraine. I was on a call with somebody on the vice president's staff, and I cannot recall who it was just briefing on what was happening in Ukraine. Kent told impeachment investigators in 2019. I raised my concerns that I had heard that Hunter Biden was on the board of a company owned by somebody that the U.S. government had spent money trying to get tens of millions of dollars back, and that could create the perception of a conflict of interest. How does someone even concoct. That kind of shit show in one sentence. That was ridiculous. The message that I recall hearing back then was that the vice president's son, Bo, was dying of cancer and that there was no further bandwidth to deal with family related issues at the time. It's always Bo. Bo is always the excuse and justification for everything Joe Biden does and ever did. It's also kind of amazing how corrupt Joe Biden wanted to put Bo Biden into the Senate office he was leaving. I'm sure Bo Biden would be the hero that Joe always describes him to be and nothing like Joe Biden, Jim Biden, Frank Biden, Hunter Biden, Natalie Biden, Jill Biden, (laughs) Ashley Biden. How many Bidens do we need to name who are corrupt and complicit in all of this? Kent gave a similar answer to Johnson Senate investigators a year later. Burisma's owner was a poster child for corrupt behavior, and Hunter Biden's position on the board could create the perception of a conflict of interest at the time when the vice president was leading the policy charge, pushing President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yetsenyuk to take more decisive anti-corruption action, he testified. And all of that's probably true, too. But Democrats pressed on whether that conflict had any impact on U.S. policy. You know, for a fact, That Hunter Biden's role on the board had zero impact on the decisions of the embassy. Kent was asked to the best of my experience and knowledge, that is correct. The respected career diplomat answered. What is the penalty for lying in an impeachment hearing? What is the penalty for lying in an impeachment hearing in an effort to take down a duly elected president of the United States? I guess we'll find out. But now we have another example of Joe and Hunter Biden's overseas corruption negatively affecting U.S. foreign policy. And it's not me saying it. And it's not the people on the right saying it. It's the State Department. And uh, hey, commies, how did all of us know this before the election? And you didn't. I mean, you're the high information voters. Are you not? And then we have this today from Axios, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a long podcast episode today, but I have to get to this scoop leaked document reveals Biden's Afghan failures. This is from Jonathan Swan, the very, very professional reporter from Axios, who gave that amazing interview of Donald Trump before the 2020 election, where he himself did not know anything relevant about covid. And the media began a week-long news cycle about how Donald Trump was just clueless about everything. Leaked notes from a White House Situation Room meeting the day before Kabul fell shed new light on just how unprepared the Biden administration was to evacuate Afghan nationals who'd helped the United States in its 20-year war against the Taliban. Why it matters. And Axios always does this. They segment their articles and they have bullet points so the child brains can take in all the important propaganda in little tiny child sized bites. Hours before the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan's capital on August 15th, 2021, senior Biden administration officials were still discussing and assigning basic actions involved in a mass civilian evacuation. Outsiders were frustrated and suspicious. The administration was having plenty of meetings, but was stuck in bureaucratic inertia and lacked urgency until the last minute. While the word immediately peppers the document, it's clear officials were still scrambling to finalize their plans on the afternoon of August 14th. For example, they just decided they need to notify local Afghan staff to begin to register their interest in relocation to the United States. The document says. And they were still determining which countries could serve as transit points for evacuees. The big picture. President Biden was determined to end the country's involvement in its longest war. And last April, he announced plans to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021. Now, Donald Trump was prepared to do that by May 1st, 2021. That was his intent. Donald Trump is the one who began the drawdown in Afghanistan. Joe Biden had nothing to do with that. But liberals try to hang their hats on the fact that Joe Biden got us out of the Afghanistan war. And of course, he made the date September 11th, 2021, because that was the most effective date to be out by, and not because he wanted to have a big ceremony for himself. President Trump had previously cut a deal for a U.S. withdrawal by May 2021. It's good that the article actually mentions that. Biden's approval ratings still haven't recovered from the chaotic scenes of those final moments with Afghans falling to their death from military transports and a suicide blast that killed 13 U.S. service members and scores of Afghans outside the gates of Hamid Karzai Airport. The Atlantic reported this week that thousands of vulnerable Afghans remain stuck in bureaucratic hell, terrified the Taliban they fought for years will hunt them down. Later this month, Congress will name members to a bipartisan 12-person commission that will study the war and issue a report similar to the 9-11 commission. And I'm sure that report will be just amazing. It's nice that they don't mention the fact that the CIA wrongly targeted a car full of civilians trying to leave and obliterated them with a drone on the side of the road. That's not the sort of thing that Axios's readers want to hear about. The details. Axios obtained the NSC's summary of conclusions for a meeting of the so-called deputies small group. It assembles top aides to various cabinet members and usually lays the groundwork for deputies or principals sessions or works out practical details for executing decisions already made by their bosses. The document regarded, quote, relocations out of Afghanistan. And the meeting was held from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. on the afternoon of August 14th, Washington time. At that moment, Taliban fighters were descending upon Kabul. The meeting was chaired by National Security Council official Liz Sherwood Randall and included senior officials across multiple agencies, including General John Hyten, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that would be the man that works under Mark Milley. Between the Lines. The meeting notes highlight how many crucial actions the Biden administration was deciding at the last minute, just hours before Kabul would fall and former Afghan president Ashraf Ghani would flee his palace in a helicopter. Action items decided in the meeting included. State will work to identify as many countries as possible to serve as transit points. Transit points need to be able to accommodate U.S. citizens, Afghan nationals, Third country nationals and other evacuees. Action. State. Immediately. Embassy Kabul will notify LES, locally employed staff, to begin to register their interest in relocation to the United States and begin to prepare immediately for departure. Action. Embassy Kabul. Immediately. And that's interesting. They get to decide whether or not they want to relocate to the United States. They get Free and automatic citizenship over here. What they're saying. While we're not going to comment on leaked internal documents, cherry-picked notes from one meeting do not reflect the months of work that were already underway, NSC spokesperson Emily Horn told Axios. Earlier that summer, we launched Operation Allies Refuge and had worked with Congress to pass legislation that gave us greater flexibility to quickly relocate Afghan partners, Horn said. It was because of this type of planning and other efforts that we were able to facilitate the evacuation of more than 120,000 Americans, legal permanent residents, vulnerable Afghans and other partners. And they have not stopped patting themselves on the back for that ever since. Behind the scenes. By the time the Saturday afternoon meeting happened, senior Biden officials across the government had been meeting around the clock with the high speed unraveling of Afghanistan. The administration had taken some measures that would help them ultimately evacuate more than 120,000 people out of Kabul airport by August 31st. The president's revised withdrawal deadline. Amid chaos and death, the effort to remove both U.S. citizens and cooperative Afghan nationals was executed in partnership with allies and many desperate, improvised efforts from the private sector and veterans groups. Oh, did Joe Biden's administration coordinate those? Oh, no. Got it. Troops were prepositioned in the region so they could get quickly to Kabul airport to run the evacuation. The administration had accelerated the special immigrant visa approvals and Biden officials had explored with other countries the possibilities of them serving as transit points for evacuees, which ultimately led to a network that hosted tens of thousands of Afghans waiting for processing and also a whole bunch of other people. It's nice they had that secondary country to drop them into. Nonetheless, many of the key decisions hadn't been made on the eve of Kabul's fall. The president himself and his intelligence community overestimated the ability of Afghan military to defend their territory against the Taliban and complicating the situation further. Ghani had personally pleaded with Biden not to do mass evacuations of Afghans earlier in the year. He feared it would signal a loss of faith in his government. (laughs) And that that has always got to be a priority. You got to have faith in corrupt governments rather than look out for the best needs of the people. I'm surprised Joe Biden hasn't made Ghani an ambassador at this point. The bottom line, many outside advisors were sounding the alarm as the Taliban swept through provincial capitals heading into August. I kept being told by people in the White House, the thing they were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation, said Matt Zeller, a former CIA officer who contacted administration officials in February 2021 about protecting Afghans who worked with the Americans. They treated us like we were chicken little. They didn't believe the sky was falling. On the 13th of July, we offered to work with them to help evacuate our partners, Zeller added. We all saw this disaster coming before the inevitable occurred. They didn't get back to us until August 15th, the day Kabul fell. Well, that's more than a whole month. Thank goodness the adults are back in the room or who knows what could have happened. Mark Jacobson, deputy NATO representative in Afghanistan during the Obama administration, told Axios. That so much planning, prioritizing and addressing of key questions had not been completed, even as Kabul was about to fall, underscores the absence of adequate interagency planning. This is especially surprising given the depth of experience on Afghanistan and contingency operations at that table. You got that. So they had all the experts there and still something got messed up. What could it have been? It's also interesting that the left-wing communist rag Axios that gives its child-brained audience the very real news, and by that I mean state media propaganda, in easy-to-swallow, bite-size pieces, would still publish something so damaging to the fake president and his fake administration. Now, I think that we can all see that the fake regime is in freefall in every way imaginable. It might already be fait accompli that Joe Biden will be taken out in one way or another from office. I don't mean taken out like assassinated. And the timing of all this is particularly interesting because the Joe Biden and Hunter Biden corruption stories are coming in waves at this point and Garrett Ziegler and Marco Polo have not even released their full report yet. They know what's coming, okay, because they know what's on the laptop. It's not that hard to get and you would think if they were smart in the least, they would have had teams of people analyzing the entire laptop to let them know where all the vulnerabilities are so that they could respond. They are, after all, corrupt. They are only good at attempting to cover up their own crimes. And it turns out they're not particularly good at that either because it's all coming out anyway. But just as I mentioned with the Cuomos and CNN earlier, they would rather distract you with a small problem to avoid dealing with the far more damaging problem. And you might say, well, Afghanistan is incredibly damaging to Joe Biden. And it might even be more damaging than the corruption stuff because the country has kind of already heard about the corruption stuff and new people really are not listening to those stories. I think that's wrong. But you also have to consider that maybe the person being protected here is not Joe Biden. Maybe what's being protected here is the entire system of corruption in the uniparty that could collapse bit by bit as the Biden corruption begins to spider web its way outward like a little crack in the windshield. The windshield has now been cracked. It is only going to get worse. And then when it does get worse, it starts touching Obama and the Clintons and the CIA and the FBI and Nancy Pelosi and all of the other corrupt officials in the U.S. government. That's what they're trying to avoid. And of course, they won't avoid that either because nothing can stop what is coming at this point. OK, the information is out there. The stories are being told. People are listening with new ears because they are open to all of this now because they have seen how the government has acted During the COVID stuff, they've seen the problems at the border. They've seen the problems in the economy. They know instinctively that something here is very, very wrong. And eventually, it's all going to be known, just as I have been saying for nearly two years. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm Your Moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on gab and getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your And the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the rain. Is moderator for tonight's broadcast. <laughs> it's ha noon!
0: Hold up.